This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Anna Smith is a multiracial woman living in Washington, D.C., executive director of the Workforce Investment Council of the District of Columbia, and she's got some very important thoughts about race to share. More often than not, the questions I receive are, what are you? What's your mix? Where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, and so it's it's racism in that it is the uh, understanding that I am different in the uh, potential assumptions or stereotypes that may come along with me being not white. But uh, I also benefit from not necessarily looking like a black woman, an Asian woman, a Latina woman. And um, I think that has somewhat insulated me from having um, uh, people engage with me in a, a hyper-focused way that um, is based on assumptions and stereotypes. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Well, I, I certainly don't see myself as being historic. Uh, there, there, uh, there have been African-American women in this position uh, before, uh, but I do feel personally uh, that this has been a, a historic moment in my own life, uh, given where I started. She's talking about the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I grew up in the segregated South. I uh, grew up uh, in a poor family. Uh, so to be where I am, given where I started from, uh, is uh, really uh, extraordinary for me and for my family. But also on this historic vote today for our uh, Supreme Court uh, member, I am uh, so proud of, of uh, Katanji Brown. Uh, she, is, she is making history. Uh, this is a historical moment, and I am so proud that I am here to witness that and to be part of her making history. And Thomas Greenfield, too, is making history as the war in Ukraine unfolds. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is John Echohawk. I'm uh, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. My name is Lara Capuano. I am located in Rochester, New York, and I am white. My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Aya Sadiq. I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian. I'm JJ Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. She's a career diplomat, 
And after retiring from a 35-year career with the U.S. Foreign Service in 2017, she returned to government in 2021, confirmed by the Senate to be the ambassador to the U.N. In addition to being the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, she was also ambassador to Liberia. She was posted in Switzerland, Paris, Kenya, the Gambia, Nigeria, and Jamaica. So she's got a very distinguished career behind her. She's an African-American woman. And while she's not the first in that position, she's leading the U.S. mission at a historic time. The challenges in front of her are led by what's happening in Ukraine. And that's what we talked with her about. We spoke with her on April 7th, the day Russia was kicked off the U.N.'s Human Rights Council. Ambassador, this morning, um, today, there was a vote by the U.N. Security Council to kick Russia off of the Human Rights Council. Why is that important? It was an unprecedented uh, vote. We suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council. Russia is a permanent member of, of the Security Council, and Russia is responsible for attacking its neighbor, compromising uh, all of the principles of the United Nations, uh, attacking the sovereignty and and uh, the border of, of a country and committing uh, gross human rights violations and war crimes. They should not sit on, on the Security Council. They have a responsibility as a member of the Security Council. Uh, and as a member of the Security Council, they're sitting on the Human Rights Council violating human rights. So this suspension today was really uh, a great moment. It was uh, really a historic moment. And I'm very, very proud to have been associated uh, with the 93 countries who voted uh, to suspend Russia. You've spoken very eloquently several times about what Russia's doing and how they have been behaving. And not just in this situation, but before this all came about, this, this war. And a lot of people are asking the question, why is Russia on the Security Council anyway after all they've done? It's a complicated situation, but I wonder if you could just give us some insight into, into why they are, they are still on the Security Council. You know, they're a permanent member of the Security Council. Uh, there are five of us who are permanent members, and that was determined when the UN was established. So there's nothing we can, can do to kick Russia off of the Security Council, but we can isolate them in the Security Council. We can condemn them in the Security Council, and we have succeeded in doing that. So that being said, Russia continues, based on the information I've gotten, at least the latest information with today, within the last few minutes before coming on with you, they're continuing these heinous activities across Ukraine. And I, I wonder if you would just take a moment or two to just tell our viewers and listeners how what your thoughts are about what Russia is doing and just lay it out in context for us. You know, we, we have seen the images, we've seen the videos of, uh, of the bodies in the street. Uh, we have seen the destroyed buildings and what Russia is doing is unconscionable. Uh, they are committing war crimes. They are committing human rights violations in the name of a, a leader who has decided that he is going to attack his neighbor. So this is Putin's unconscionable war against the Ukrainian people. And thousands of lives have been lost. 
uh, innocent Ukrainians, but also Russian soldiers whose bodies have been left in the street where uh, no one is there to pick them up or, or, or take them home to, to their mothers. So this is not just uh, a war that Russia is, is carrying out against the Ukrainian people. What he's doing to his own people is, is, is something that Russians themselves ought to question, but it is also an attack on democracy. And that's why it's important that we and other countries are engaging on this aggressively, uh, because this is an attack on democracy. It's, attack, it's an attack on our freedoms, and it's, it's an attack on the UN Charter, and we all have to stand up against uh, Russia's aggression. The word that comes to mind when I hear you talk about this is dereliction. Dereliction of duty as a global citizen, as a neighbor, as a leader, and just as a human being. And, you know, I'm not going to go down that rhetorical road asking what is in his head because nobody knows. But one thing no, we have noticed. <laughs> yeah, one thing we have noticed in the last few weeks is there seems to be this pressure seems to be making a difference in some way. Can you talk to us about why? this pressure from the UN and other elements of the global family, if you will, why this pressure is important and, and what's next in terms of pushing this thing forward, because it's clear you know, so far he hasn't stopped. You know, he, he thought that he could go into uh, Ukraine and in two weeks uh, bring the Ukrainians to their knees uh, and have the Ukrainians waving uh, a white flag. And he failed at that. And he also thought that the international community would not come to Ukraine's defense, that we would not be unified. And he failed at that as well. We are unified. We're more unified than we've ever been. NATO is more unified than it has ever been. And we are all supporting Ukraine in, in their effort to to fight against this Russian uh, aggression. And while Putin hasn't stopped, and I'm not going to even pretend I can explain why he hasn't uh, stopped, uh, he knows that he cannot win this battle. He is not going to uh, be able to defeat the Ukrainians. Uh, he will leave a lot of destruction behind, but in the end, uh, he will have lost uh, his own uh, reputation uh, and, uh, and hopefully uh, come out of this understanding and other countries understanding that they cannot uh, un make an unprovoked attack on another country. I want to ask you, the UN plays a gigantic role on the world stage in the diplomatic realm and so many other things, you know, having over my career, which has spanned a couple of few decades, actually, um, seen the, the value of the work the UN does uh, around the world. This is one of the most important moments in history. Um, and because of the diplomatic work the UN does, a lot of the sanctions and a lot of the activity against Putin has been able to take place. So I want to ask, Moving forward, what more can the UN do? Uh, is, there, is, there, is there a path forward on something else that the UN can do, uh, more that it can do in terms of dealing with the situation? Well, first and foremost, the UN can uh, help uh, to uh, gather the evidence. There's a UN Commission, UN um, High Commission um, 
sorry, a UN uh, Human Rights Council uh, Commission of Inquiry uh, that has been established. And that commission of inquiry will play an important role in gathering the evidence so that when we bring uh, uh, prosecutions forward, we have the evidence that is needed to hold Russia accountable. And that will be a key role that the UN can play in the future. The UN also plays a key role on the humanitarian front. Uh, UN humanitarian uh, workers are on the front lines of, of, of this fight. They are meeting uh, Ukrainians who are crossing the border into neighboring countries. I met with a number of them when I was in Romania and Moldova over the weekend. Many of them are inside uh, Ukraine supporting Ukrainians directly. Uh, and that is an important responsibility that the UN has to provide the humanitarian support, the welcoming uh, um, arms to Ukrainians who need the protection of, of the United Nations. You know, I did see some of the video from your trip while you were there in Romania and, um, you know, some of the, some of what you talked about, well, obviously it was heartbreaking and having been in war zones for many times myself, can't imagine what this one was like, but I wonder if you could share what your thoughts were as you were engaging with some of those people who were victims and, and just seeing essentially what was unfolding in that region. Uh, it was extraordinarily emotional. Uh, I have a very, very hard time controlling the tears when I have four women in front of me all crying and telling uh, their stories of sorrow and, and the horrors that they have experienced and, and the nightmares they're having about what is happening in their country. One woman told me she spoke to her husband, she'd left Odessa and she spoke to her husband and he said, there's an attack going on right now, very near our home. And, and she knows that she fled and she's safe with, uh, with her son uh, here. We were in um, Romania, but she doesn't know if her husband will get out alive. Uh, she doesn't know if she will have a home uh, to go back to. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's sad and it's really uh, emotional uh, to hear these women. And while they are being welcomed with open arms, they were uh, um, being given uh, uh, meals. I had the opportunity to talk to Jose and, uh, Andreas while I was uh, there and, and, and his organization is providing hot meals for them. And they're getting that kind of support, but that doesn't take the whole out of their hearts that they are feeling for not knowing what is happening to their home. Uh, one woman, I, I asked her where she was from and she said, I don't know whether to say I live in Kyiv or I used to be from Kyiv. And I can't even imagine that happening in, in, in my own life. I mean, we're, we're talking about 4 million people who in a matter of six weeks crossed the border and left their homes behind. 10 million total who have been forced out of, out of their homes. 6 million people as, as displaced people inside of Ukraine and not knowing uh, where they are going to get their next meal, uh, in the cold, uh, without water, uh, without food. And, and hearing um, uh, bombs being rained on them uh, all day and all night long. It, it's more, uh, none of us expected this 
kind of event to take place in Europe in this day and at this time. That is exactly why so many of the people that I've spoken to are so grateful the U.S. is taking a leadership that it's taken in this in this process. And, you know, you are the highest ranking U.S. government official that I've been able to speak to. But, you know, in addition, I've spoken to ambassadors and foreign ministers and um, other people of leadership in leadership from other countries. And they have all expressed to me just how grateful they are. And certainly I've been talking to folks from Ukraine and they're so grateful for the role the U.S. has played so far. And I just wonder if you could just summarize for us before you have to go the importance of the role the U.S. has played and why it's so important to President Biden and the people on your team. You know, President Biden has been clear. This is an attack on democracy. Uh, it is a, an autocracy trying to uh, force its way uh, into another country, redrawing borders, changing uh, uh, the, the, the world order. And we have to stand up. And we're, we're the largest country uh, opposing this, but we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, so we we have worked in unity with our our European colleagues. Uh, we have worked in unity with the Ukrainians, and and I have to say, Ukrainians Ukrainians have been extraordinarily brave. I mean, imagine that the president of Ukraine has has stayed in Kiev while the city is under attack, and he's going out meeting with his soldiers, going to hospitals. Uh, uh, embracing uh, his people, going into areas where uh, the Russians have left bodies laying in the street. He spoke to the Security Council yesterday, and when he spoke to the Security Council, I'm sorry, it was on Tuesday that he spoke, uh, we were just enthralled by his words as he described what was going on. And you can hear that his voice is crusty now. It's not the same smooth voice that he had when this started because he has been standing up and speaking for his people. So we have to stand with them. We have to support them and we have to embrace them uh, as they uh, fight this battle for, for their lives, for their future, for, the, for their country. And um, and there's no better cause than the fight for democracy. Well, Madam Ambassador, it is such a pleasure to talk to you today. And, um, uh, you know, I, I need to go. I know you need to go. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank I, need you. To, I could I could talk to you for all day, but I know you have to go. But I want to ask you one more thing, if I can, before you go. Today is a historic day for the Supreme Court. Um, and you made history as well. So I wonder if you could just share with us just for a few seconds what it's like to be an African-American woman in the position that you are on the global stage. Well, I, I certainly don't see myself as being historic. Uh, there, there, uh, there have been African-American women in this position uh, before, uh, but I do feel personally uh, that this has been a, a historic moment in my own life. Uh, given where I started. Uh, I grew up in the segregated South. I uh, 
grew up uh, in a poor family. Uh, so to be where I am, given where I started from, uh, is uh, really uh, extraordinary for me and for my family. But also on this historic vote today for our uh, Supreme Court uh, member, I am uh, so proud of, of uh, Katanji Brown. Uh, she, is, she is making history. Uh, this is a historical moment, and I am so proud that I am here to witness that and to be part of her making history. Well, thank you so much. And I didn't in intend to suggest that you were historic or ancient because you're not very young, <laughs> especially compared to me. But, you know, um, I'm just grateful that you you are making history because the role that you're playing right now in this moment because of this situation the world has never seen is historic and that's what i'm referring to but thank you again for this and hope thank we'll have you. to engage again in the future i will look forward to it and thank you for that compliment stay tuned for some thoughts about race in america and details about our next guest you're listening to colors uh, i'm kimmy yong um, i'm a chinese american i'm uh, from upstate new york and based in new york city for so many Asian Americans, our stories and our um, our pain has been largely discounted uh, by the mainstream media, and I, I think that you know we even in you know the beginning when we were working on the railroads, and I, I don't know if you guys know about this uh, the photo called the last spike. Um, yes, which was you know it's 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 all white men celebrating the final spike going into the transcontinental railroad which was largely built by chinese workers and there's not a single chinese person in this photograph um they were not included even though they did most of the work uh and i, I feel that that has largely been um you know what we've seen in media for decades where the stories of asian americans have not been told um and a lot of the stereotypes and tropes have persisted. And so we, we come up today, um, you know, we see a lot of these hateful attacks and violence and pain. And I think it's been surprising for a lot of people, but it's it, it hasn't been that surprising for Asian Americans. We've seen it for a long time. Maybe this is one of the few times that other people have acknowledged it. But it's, it's definitely not been the first time that we've felt these kinds of attacks. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. My name is John Echohawk. I'm uh, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. My name is Lara Capuano. I am located in Rochester, New York, and I am white. My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Aya Sadik. I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian. I'm JJ Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors... The city of Bucha in Ukraine. It's the scene of genocide. So the mayor of this city said that they have dug out a number of mass graves. 85% of the bodies 
that they've exhumed from those graves, people were deliberately shot in the back of their heads. Yuri Sak, an advisor to Ukraine's Ministry of Defense. What we have in Ukraine is not actually a military campaign of one country against another. What we are seeing in Ukraine is a deliberate, willful killing of Ukrainian people just by virtue of us being Ukrainians. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go. Thanks to a lot of people this week. Olivia Dalton, Jelena Porter, Melissa Wahibi, David Wiedemeyer, Lisa Hibbert, Jonathan Wyatt, Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Micheline Bowman, Jocelyn Root, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Gina Bazemore, Jackie Kendall, Marvin Worth, Darren Brown, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. Just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.